attention, attention please. The Camp Ojibwa History Podcast is on the air. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Camp Ojibwa History Podcast. My name is Christopher Thomason. I'm your host for this and many, many more trips down memory lane. The Camp Ojibwa History Podcast is a podcast dedicated to collecting the stories, the history, the memories of Camp Ojibwa for Boys in Eagle River, Wisconsin, founded 1928. This week, my guest on the podcast is Gary Greenberg. Gary has some in incredible stories. I had no idea. I thought he was going to come over and we'd have a nice chat about his time at camp and that he's an investor. And then he just blew me away. So something to definitely look forward to in a few minutes. First, Bricks of Fame. I know, I know. I've been telling you about him forever. I know. I did a commercial. You heard the whole thing. We've been hitting you on the social media. But this is it. We got a week left. And I only am telling everyone so many times because I want to make sure no one gets left out. Because I know what's going to happen is I'm going to get to camp this summer and visiting weekend's going to come around and a bunch of parents are going to be up there and they're going to go, oh, what's this thing? You could put your name on a brick? I didn't know anything about it. I know it's going to happen. So I'm trying to avoid that. I'm giving you a chance. If you haven't gotten your brick yet, campojibwahistory.org. Click on Bricks of Fame. It's easy. takes five minutes. Boom, boom, boom. Get it in there. That's it. Also, the Camp Ojibwe History Podcast is about to take a cross-country journey. In the months of February and March, I'm going to be different locations all around the country, catching up with some guys, some guys who can't travel anymore, some guys who spend their winters in warmer climates, dropping in on people all around the country, recording some interviews, getting some more memorabilia, some really cool stuff. If you're out there and you're a fan of the podcast, you're a camp guy or a camp girl, and you'd like to be on the podcast, drop me a line, Christopher at CampOjibwaHistory.org. Let me know, and hopefully I can stop in and talk with you. Get a great story on tape and share it right here on the Camp Ojibwa History Podcast. That would be amazing. All right, that's it. Enough of that talk. Let's get down to it, because this is a really good one. Gary Greenberg on the Camp Ojibwa History Podcast. I started camp in 1960 and was a camper, JC, and counselor from 60 to 69. Nice. And then brought my family up to post camp, so I did not miss a year from 1960 to 1990. Wow. 30 straight years. And my kids, uh, even today, who have traveled literally all over the world, uh, remember post camp as being their best vacation ever. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, my wife, uh, it, you'll get a kick out of this. Uh, so uh, I hadn't missed a year, started in 1960, as I said, and didn't miss a year to 1990. And I got married in 1974 in the first summer. I got married in May. And a few months later, in July, I said to my wife, oh, by the way, I'm going to camp with a bunch of the guys. 
I mean, what do you mean you're going to camp? And what do you mean you're going without me? I'm a camper. I love camp. I want to see this Ojibwa. I've heard about it. Well, I'm going with a bunch of the guys. She said, this is the last year you're going by yourself. Wow. So okay. that started the post-camp situation. And my wife and I, literally in 1975, uh, after being in my own business, which I'll come back to in a second, uh, went up to camp as a married couple with no kids. And where did we stay? In the arts and crafts shop. <laughs> well, we couldn't stay in a regular cabin. And sure. There was no room for us. I waited tables, and she nice. waited tables, and it was free. <laughs> and Pearl beat me up pretty good to run the tables properly because I had been a JC and been out of it for a while. Uh, but my wife and I literally went to camp uh, as a couple without kids for many years. Oh, that's great. It was phenomenal. She loved it. Uh, uh, the people we met at post-camp, in addition to uh, other folks that stayed, uh, were you know our lifelong friends yeah. today. And as a matter of fact, I have to tell you that, like you said, uh, you know once you get to camp, you can't leave. Uh, I didn't leave camp even as a single guy until the very last day that they pushed me out <laughs> and that I had to go back to school or back to the real world. Yeah. And I went to post camp for many years by myself without my wife and just you know waited tables and met all the parents. That's fantastic. And just so I had an incredible uh, stint there. Now, the only reason I stopped, and it wasn't anything specific other than my kids got to be college age. Mm. And college age, uh, they started right in August, and it was right over right over camp, and all of a sudden, that changed, and I literally, and Denny's not happy with me, I literally have not been to back to camp since 1990. Oh. I didn't miss for 30 years, and all of a sudden, I missed for 25. <laughs> now, when uh, when Mickey and Al, particularly when Mickey decided he didn't want to buy camp for a lot of reasons, and Al went to Denny and said, I'll give you X amount of time, I was one of the guys that were called and said, would you like mm. to buy camp with me, Denny? And I joined in Elliot and all the other Steve Katz and all the guys and, and said, I'm in. I mean, I vicariously, I don't care about the money. I care about the, repu the, the tradition and the history sure. and what it did for me. I have to tell you as I'm talking, I'm getting choked up thinking, remember? Uh, so in 1960, uh, it was, I was very, very lucky to get to camp. My parents were middle class, but certainly not in the high end, in the high range. And camp still, in the 60s, was a very expensive maneuver. Sure. But interestingly, my parents needed to get me off the streets of Chicago. I was not a mm. suburban kid. Um, most of my friends today, and I live in Highland Park, most of my friends came from Highland Park, from Ojibwa, but they mm. didn't come from Chicago. There yeah. was a smaller base from Chicago. Uh, somehow or another, through a friend, I got introduced to Ojibwe. My parents thought it would be a great place to get me off the streets. I think I started at, let's see, what is it? I started at about 12 years old, so I didn't start at 9 or 10, which I really missed. Sure. I would have liked to have yeah. done that. Mm -hmm. uh, I was, I would tell you, for those two or three years prior, 10, 11, 12, was a juvenile delinquent. Mm and was on the streets, getting in trouble all the time. Mischievous-oriented trouble, but nevertheless trouble. Yeah. And actually got picked up by the police several times. Wow. And uh, my parents uh, uh, weren't thrilled with me as a kid. And, <laughs> I'm uh, sure. Uh, I was uh, literally uh, punished where I had to be in my room for three or four months in a row. And, and other parents ostracized me and didn't want their kids to play mm. with me. Uh, however... I was at, at a young age, an exceptional young athlete, mm. way above 
my age group in terms of, of caliber of athlete. And I was a baseball player, and that was, you know, Little League was big then. All the other stuff was not as big. Oh, yeah, of course. And I played Little League. I went two or three leagues from league to league to league, but I still was a juvenile delinquent, and this was a way to get me off the streets. Hmm. My second year at camp, my first year at camp was in cabin 10. Right out of the gate, I won Collegiate Week with Princeton. What kind <laughs> of experience is that? Incredible. And I was a very, very good athlete just coming up right out of, right out of uh, Little League. I played every sport and was very good um, at the age of 12. Uh, unfortunately, as everybody got bigger, I stayed the same. And everybody got bigger and stronger, and I wasn't quite as, as good uh, in high school or college, although I did try to play baseball in college mm. and actually did play for a year, year and a half, and uh, had a very interesting, and I'll, I will tell you and share with us because it became a lore, for me, I had a very interesting accident in college, which I'll go back to, oh. which became folklore for me and, and Ojibwa. And I, I did all kinds of uh, storytelling at shower day, shower morning on Sundays, and all kinds of kids would come and listen to the story because it was pretty, pretty unique. So in any case, uh, in 1961, I'll never forget this, I got off the buses. We took buses at that time. The tra I took train the first couple of years. Oh, wow. And then buses. And I got off the bus, and Mickey and Al pulled me off to the side. And they said, Gary, uh, look, I'm going to tell you straight out. Uh, we had a lot of parents call us and say, we did not want Greenberg in my kid's cabin. We had no place else to put you. Wow. One wrong move, and you're out of here. So here's the deal. That's it. We're not going to go through any more than that. I heard that loud and clear and uh, didn't want to get thrown out of camp. Wanted to be there for a long, long time. Yeah. And that stuck with me and helped straighten me up. Plus, the counselors that I had were major role models, major guys that I looked up to. And, and uh, Who were those guys? Um, I, I, I actually have made some contact with this guy. I looked up to a guy by the name of Jay Maul, mm. and his, his brother, Neil Maul, was a major athlete there, and he was great. My... my uh, uh, collegiate week coach at Princeton, his name was Bert Rubenstein, and I mm. looked up to him. His brother was Ronnie Rubenstein, one of the top athletes, uh, Jewish athletes in Chicago as well as Ojibwe, both basketball and tennis, uh, and he was fabulous. And I knew Dizzy. Dizzy was a concert when I was a camper, mm. and he was great. All those guys were great. I loved the piano playing for collegiate week. There was a guy by the name of George Sebring who did that. Uh, so all of that was really phenomenal, and, and I was, as I said, a very good athlete, and so that drew me to camp I didn't want to miss. I wanted to be there, and when I uh, had an opportunity to be a JC, I didn't care if there was a lot of money. I didn't really care. I just wanted to be at Ojibwe, mm. and so I became a, a JC. In those years, you didn't get paid as a JC. You just waited tables and got right. room board and all you could eat, and that's what it was, <laughs> and a coach, and I was a good coach, and a lot of the guys, the counselors wanted to pick me as a coach, and and I did have a very good friend that I became very close with many years, uh, an unusual guy by the name of Mike Marder, M-A-R-D-E-R. -E and he was a great music guy. And he mm. was a great talent guy. And he was a great uh, uh, skit guy. He needed me to coach. He got me to coach. And he did all the song night stuff. And mm. he did, we did yeah. great. 
and he let me pick most of the team. And I picked a lot of old big guys in, at Collegiate Week because as they're matched up with young guys, and I don't know if box hockey is still a, a deal, oh, sure, of but course. I had guys that were 12 or 13 play against guys who were 9 or 10. And even <laughs> though they weren't good athletes, they beat them just because of strength. Yeah. And when we did uh, obstacle race or we did tug of war, my guys were bigger. My team, and we won this Collegiate Week, my, uh, my first pick was Steve Katz. Nice. Who is <laughs> got a reputation unto himself, strange as could be, wild as could be, big heart, great guy. But at that time, there were a lot of people didn't like him mm. because he was very boisterous. He was a great track guy, great sw- swim guy, and he told everybody, nobody can beat me. And he was, you know, taken that way. Sure. My, nick- my team nickname, uh, 1965, I believe, was called the Zoo. <laughs> and we were University of Pennsylvania. We won. It was phenomenal. So forth and so on. So I went all the way through uh, JC and then in college, and I'll never forget this as well. In 1969, I was the counselor in cabin 12. I did never wanted to be in 13 for a variety of reasons. Mm. Uh, 12 was better, and I was in 12 a bunch of years. From cabin 6 through cabin 12, every senior counselor was a college graduate. Oh, wow. And it was incredible what we had. Mm. Uh, I was very, very close those years with two guys that were major, major camp guys, we were called, I don't think it was the Three Amigos, but it was pretty close. Uh, Scott Levenfeld, you probably heard that name. Mm-hmm. Sid Harris and myself okay. were literally inseparable as, as friends, mm. both at camp and at, away from camp. And during those years, I became very, very close with Denny. Uh, however, I was still wild and crazy. And uh, <laughs> the Miramita sign, if the Miramita sign was gone he would go right to Greenberg and a couple of other guys. <laughs> Why did you do that? How many times can you get away with that? And uh, we were very close, but he, you know, if there was punishment to be fed it out, he fed it out to sure. me and to other guys. And uh, on the far field, he put pegs in for the track out there, and the grass would grow over it, and we'd get punished. Hank Kransky and I, we had to go out, look, and Scott Levenfeld, <laughs> look for the pegs and mark the pegs. We had peg duty so many times, I can't even begin to tell you. And uh, so when Denny called in 1980s, 1986, and you want to be part of it, Denny, I'm in. I don't care what it is, I'm in because of you, because of camp and all the other guys. Yeah. Uh, so I developed a very close relationship with, with Denny. And as a matter of fact, I will tell you that Denny pushed hard on me and Mickey pushed hard on me to become a high school basketball or baseball coach. Hmm. They thought I had the temperament, the capability, the knowledge, the skill at bringing kids' uh, 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 talent out, and they felt that that's something that I could do and would excel at. And Denny was a wrestling and football coach, and he wanted me to go with him. And they pushed hard. Uh, But I I will tell you that that I was very materially driven. And when I was growing up, even before I got to camp, I was a caddy at a local country club, Mm. a local Jewish country club. And I kept saying, I want this when I grow up. I want, this is where I want to be. I want somebody carrying my bag. And yeah. Then when I went to Ojibwa and I met the parents at Parents Weekend and I saw what they were involved in, I said to Denny and Mickey, I'm much more materially, materially driven and I want to be in my own business and I want to be in the business world and that's what I'm going to drive toward. I will tell you that I got into business because of Ojibwa. Mm. When I graduated college, and as I said, when, in 1969, we were all college graduates and whatever, and I I met father after father after father, and they knew me very well. I'm going to tell you that I, my parents were not thrilled when I went to camp after graduating college. Well, Gary, what are you going to do? you got to get a job. So I'll get it in September. What's the difference? 
And uh, they went along with that because camp certainly didn't pay a lot of money. Right. Uh, but I said, look, either all the fathers are going to be there. I'll get a bunch of interviews. And I did. Mm. And uh, at least six to ten fathers said, come and see me. Got a spot for you. Blah, blah, blah. And one of the families uh, named the Bagan family. Have you met Kenny Bagan, Mike Bagan? Sure, or? of course. Okay, yeah. so those guys are close to me, and, and I knew their families and Grant Bagan. And uh, long and short of it was uh, I got a call from Bernie Bagan, an, an older gentleman, uh, Mike Bagan and Kenny Bagan's dad. Mm. And they said, I've got a spot for you. I want you. We've got an investment in a company, and I want you to meet the owner. And I went to work for that company. And it was wow. all because of Ojibwe. And uh, when I was at this company, I met uh, a guy, and we became uh, friends, and he became my business partner in a business that we wanted to start. We needed money. I went to Ojibwe Fathers and Ojibwe Guys, hmm. and they, I raised 90% of the money from Ojibwe. Wow. Uh, to start my own business in 1971. Uh, who was my accountant? Harvey Weinberg. Hmm. And his family, because of Ellen, and I went to Harvey, how do I do this, how do I do that? He said, I can help. And we started that business. Uh, I started a business in 1971, and most of the investors were Ojibwe guys, wow. either Ojibwe fathers or Ojibwe guys that, that had done well and yeah. wanted to loan us, loan or invest money with us. That's awesome. It is. It really was. Uh, uh, so, as I said, my business was completely started because of Ojibwe and no other reason. I, 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 my family didn't have any money. My partner didn't have any money. But I said, hey... You know, I, I went to a very affluent camp, and let's talk to these folks and see. And, and they bought our story, and we went into business. And the Bacon family was were key investors in our business as well. Mm. So that, that got us started. And I was in business for, um, for 32 years uh, and actually hired a number of Ojibwe people. And I will come back to that, and this is something you can leave there because maybe he will see it. Mm. Uh, one of the few regrets that I have in my life is with the Kerman family and with George Kerman in specific. Hmm. Uh, George Kerman uh, and I were very good friends, and, and Bernie was my counselor at, at camp, and I, I want to come back to that as well because he did some very, very funny stuff that I'll never, ever forget. Yeah. Uh, but George Kerman uh, ended up working for our company, and we were very close friends, and he was with our company. We were a 30-some-year-old company when it, it all changed, and uh, I'm going to say he worked for a company for 25 years. He was there from almost the very start. Wow. And we ended up with uh, maybe he was a, one of the first 20 people in the company. We ended up with 450 people. So it ended up to be a very good-sized business. And back to the regret, and maybe he will see this and call me because he still does not talk to me today. Mm. But uh, we had a bunch of ups and downs in this business. We were connected with the airline world, and the airlines were good. We were good. When the airlines were bad, we were bad. And they had a lot of roller coaster type history. Sure. And George doesn't know this, but I, I uh, there were many changes in our business that where we had to let people go. And I always came to George's aid and protected him as best as I possibly could. And one time we were going through a tremendous struggle, and I did not protect him. And he ended up losing his job. I gave him the information. I told him, and he's never talked to me since. And mm. I feel terrible about it. I've seen him recently at a shiva, and I said hi, and he walked right by me. And I talked to his wife for two minutes, and I said, hey, I know you guys hate me, but, you know, whatever. So if George sees this, George, I feel terrible about that. Uh, I should have, in, in retrospect, said, look, an Ojibwe bond is an Ojibwe bond. I don't care who else we let go. George is not in that group, and I did not do that. Mm. And I regret that to this day. Even though I had the guts to tell him in person and not have somebody else do it, 
I still never felt good, and uh, that's one of the few regrets I have in my life wow. is him. Bernie, great, great guy. He was my counselor in, in one of my cabins, and he never could keep track of, or we as campers took stuff from him, and he never could keep track of it. So he wrote on everything he had, Bernie's soap dish, Bernie's hairbrush, Bernie's, Bernie's cologne, and, and I'll never forget that. And, and Bernie was the Kerman family uh, institution at Ojibwa as a whole. I know they're part of the old-timer group. They're sure. old-timers. I call them old-timers rather than old-timers, <laughs> but uh, they were a great, great group, and and feel feel today that uh, that there's still a strong kinship there, even though, as I said, George is still won't talk to me today. And this is probably uh, 20, 25 years. Yeah. Um, so um, what else? I'll go back to, uh, I also was an end man at Ojibwe, in the oh. Ojibwe Minstrel Show. And then it became the Jubilee for political right. reasons. Yes. But we absolutely wore blackface in those days. And I was part of the end man group. Wow. And absolutely just... You know, that was a thrill beyond. And I will tell you that at that time, even though camp was known even more so for the competition and the sports and the driving competition, camp had a tremendous drama music area where lots of guys, both counselors and JCs, played musical instruments. And the Ojibwe Jubilee in the Minnesota was always phenomenal to me. Yeah. Yeah, we talk about that a lot, that in the old days, especially um, for a camp that was so known for competition, that that other side of it was always very strong. It was. It wasn't the thing we advertised, no. but it was always very strong. It was. And uh, I was at camp when Lou Mager and Lou Fletcher were there. Lou Mager was a counselor. When I was a senior counselor, he was my other counselor in Cabin 7. Hmm. He was never there. He never even knew any of the kids' names <laughs> in any of the cabin whatsoever. Uh, but he was a great trumpet player, just a great musician. And when he got together with Lou Mager, we, and then Paul James came slightly after that, we had some of the most exciting uh, Ojibwe Jubilees and other plays that we did that were literally professional between Mager and Fletcher. They were unbelievable uh, in terms of what they did. And I really enjoyed Fletcher. He, he, was, he had a bed. That was about it. I never saw him at all. He was in the mess hall. He was in the rec hall. He was up in the counselor's lodge, but never in the cabin, yeah. except to sleep. <laughs> barely, barely slept at that as well. So you took you were a part of that though. I mean, oh, as yes. far as yes. not just the inmen, yes. but the singing Ojibwe singers, maybe things uh, like that. Actually, I was part of the crew. I did not ah, have okay. much of a voice growing up. It was not an inclination for me. I was majorly sports driven. Sure, but I still loved what we were doing there, and I never thought I had much of a voice. I have a much better voice today than I did when I was growing mm. up, and feel I could sing. But I was part of the crew. So okay. I, 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 moved, uh, I moved stuff around. I put the risers all over the place. I did the curtain and lighting, and I was always nice. part of the crews. I wanted to be involved no matter what. Absolutely, and that's just as important. The show must go on. Yeah. So, <laughs> so uh, great stuff there. Uh, um, again, a couple of really fun stories. Uh, so Harvey, uh, here I am, uh, counselor, uh, first or second year counselor, uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm a sophomore in college, and I'm trying to play baseball at the University of Oklahoma mm. as a walk-on. And I was pretty good, but still short and still didn't really, you know, build out to, you know, six feet or whatever. And I here as a Jewish kid trying to play baseball Oklahoma in 1960, 1967. Mm. 
uh, not an interesting, not a, an interesting spot. It's a so, tough road. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, uh, so I was always, uh, as a counselor, I was always in charge of our little league program. Mm. That was my that and basketball were my skill sets. I was always in charge of our little league program, and we played uh, Three Lakes and Eagle River and other. You know, of course, we were collectors and all stars, but we played. You know, the city, and mm. we always won. We always did had a great team, and uh, let's call it, let's call it sixty seven, sixty eight. I think it's 1967, really. Uh, in my cabin is a, a young boy by the name of, I can't remember his first name, his last name is Goldblatt. And who is his mother married to? Leo DeRocher. <laughs> Leo DeRocher happens to be a client of Harvey Weinberg's. Wow. As Harvey's getting into the world of athletes, he, so I say to Harvey, uh, I hear that Leo DeRocher is going to come up to camp. Not during, not during visiting weekend, because he doesn't want to be around all the parents, but some other time. Mm-hmm. As a matter of fact, in Ojibwa lore, it was put in the papers, I'm going to call it 1966, 67, one of those two years, Leo DeRocher left the bench of managing the Cubs to go to Ojibwa, and they put it in the paper. Al Schwartz's camp in northern Wisconsin, Leo DeRocher leaves the bench to go there. I had heard that he was coming up. He wanted to see his stepkid. Sure. So I say to Harvey, I mean, I was very close with Harvey and very close with Ellen, and Ellen's girls were all growing up at Ojibwa, as was uh, Mickey and Reva's kids. Right. And uh, I say to Harvey, Harv, can you get me exposure to Leo DeRocher? Can you watch me pitch something, anything? He said, I'll see what I can do. Nice. Leo comes up. I get assigned I think Harvey's influenced Mickey to a degree to lead Leo with one other guy around camp. Show him where we, what we've got. Nice. The basketball courts, the cabins, the whole bit. And we get out. I got this all set up. We get out to the hardball diamond and on the far field where the pegs are and whatever. Right. And everything is under lock and key. All the baseballs and bats. I've only, I'm the only one that's got the lock and key. And Harvey says to Leo, Leo, uh, Gary is a young aspiring baseball player. He's a pitcher. He's playing for the University of Oklahoma. Would you watch him on the mound? He says, yeah, yeah, for sure. Oh, that's great. Here. I got this all set up. I got my catcher out there. <laughs> I get my stuff. I start throwing. I, you know, I throw 10, 15, 20 pitches. He says, I've, I've seen enough. wasn't a great line, but he says, I've seen enough. Okay. You know, draws me over. I come over there. He says to me, and, and now I need to step back a bit. I said I was the baseball coach. And I selected the baseball players and the team that was going to be on the team. And his son did not make the team. And his son at the time, Randy Hundley, was a catcher for the Cubs. And this kid, Goldblatt, had every regalia, Cubs regalia, catching regalia that you could think of. Mm. He had the mask and all the stuff from the Cubs, and he was really decked out. But he was a fair to middling player, and I didn't select him. Leo says to me, uh, kind of shaking his head, he says... uh, I understand you didn't select my my stepkid for the hardball team. I said, that's true. He said he wasn't good enough. I said, you know, actually, he he just wasn't. He said, well, I saw you pitch here. I'd find another profession. (laughs) Wow. So that was my exposure to Leo and to being on the mound with Harvey. And uh, it was definitely a dig. It definitely hurt. I wasn't sure that I had the capability to, to go to anywhere in the majors or minors, sure. but I was going to give it a try. And I actually, uh, back to the sports background, I actually majored in radio and TV broadcasting because I thought if I couldn't do X, 
I could do wow. Oh, yeah. And totally. I wanted to be a color or a, a play-by-play guy. Yeah. And I thought I could do it, so I did radio TV broadcasting. University of Oklahoma had a great radio and TV broadcasting uh, program, and I was actually pointed in that direction mm. uh, because of a, I wanted some kind of a sports career. So that's my Leo DeRocher story for wow. you and Harvey's story. It was really great. So the accident and the folklore of uh, Gary Greenberg. So I am playing baseball. I, I, I made the freshman team as a walk-on in 1965. Uh, in a 1966 or 67 again, um, I'm now trying to make the, the, the sophomore team or the varsity and the traveling squad. And I didn't make the traveling squad to, to go on the spring trip. I'm one of 50 instead of one of 30 sure. to go on the, and I'm in the second grouping. And uh, so I missed that, but I'm still playing and still got a shot. And uh, I was in a fraternity. And in that day, in those days, at the University of Oklahoma, fraternities were very, very strong. I was a ZBT, and uh, they had things called fraternity walkouts. And to make a short story of this, I ended up being asked by the, by the fraternity to go with them on the walkout as a fun thing uh, rather than they used to take some members literally and drop them out in the middle of nowhere, the cornfields of Oklahoma or Texas, and, and get, kick them out because the, some of those members were nasty to, uh, to, the, to the pledges. Uh, um, Hell Week, when I went to the University of Oklahoma, was, was at the top end of the worst. Wow. Uh, as a matter of fact, my, my fraternity house was akin to Animal House in every which way that you could think. Mm. The movie. Yeah. Every which way. Any case, I go on this fraternity walkout. Uh, again, to try to make a long story short, I'm in Fort Worth, Texas with a bunch of guys. The bus for 50 or 60 pledges has already gone to a bar, and we're following uh, along, and we stop at a gas station to get some directions. Make a long story short again, uh, sorry to use that phraseology, um, the gas station attendant at the gas station shot me and another guy. Wow. Yeah. It's major folklore at Ojibwa. And wow. A major story. Yeah. Uh, I was trying to talk to the guy. He, he was got unnerved. It was a very busy Saturday night. He thought we were going to rob the station. We certainly had nothing, nothing along those lines. But sure. one of our guys got a little sarcastic with him, and he pulled out a gun. Wow. So I went up to him, and I said, hey, we're not trying to do anything. We're not trying to... Take anything. We're not trying to cause any mischief. Let, we'll get out of your hair. We'll we'll leave right now. And I walk away to get in the car, and he shoots me in the back. Wow. Uh, one of the other guys, another fraternity brother, got out of the car. What did you do? Why did you shoot him? We were trying to leave, and he shot him in the stomach. So uh, that was that started the the Greenberg lore because I survived. And how did I survive? By the luck of a miracle, by the luck of God, uh, by the luck of uh, Good medicine at that point in 1967. I'm 19 years old. I was in great shape, but the bullet lodged in my heart. Oof. And in 1967, open heart surgery was not very prevalent as it is today. Right. Uh, there was not a heart-lung machine in Fort Worth, Texas, but they had to get one up from Houston. I first had lung surgery uh, because my lungs were were uh, had bullet holes in them. Mm. Uh, the bullet ricocheted. I was shot with the 22. If I was shot with any other caliber, I wouldn't be here. Wow. today shot with the 22 uh they patched up my lungs and saw the bullet was lodged in my heart and a couple of days later they couldn't wait any longer and i had open heart surgery in a miracle to get the bullet out of my heart with almost no damage the bullet dropped in through a an artery or a vein and dropped into my right ventricle and caused almost no muscle damage just some bruising but the bullet was lodged in there wow. and they got it out and i survived um i went back to camp 
this happened in March, and I went back in camp. Camp started in in the middle of early June. Yeah, and I was back at camp. Oh, that's incredible. Yeah, and I was uh, when I was uh, playing baseball. I'm five seven, or was at that time. There's shrinkage now, but uh, <laughs> I was 170 pounds, and I came out 120 pounds. Oh. My parents did not want me to go to camp, but I wanted to go because I wanted to get my body back in shape. I wanted to work out. Uh, I was called railroad tracks because I, I had railroad tracks oh, here, and I sure. had a big scar here. And it was very vivid at that point. Three, four months later, it was bright red mm. and, and I, you know, so forth. And I was, instead of 170, it was 125. And so I literally used camp as an opportunity to work out and get back in shape. I was a pretty muscular guy. Uh, and the stories were abounding, you know, they, and everybody wanted to hear how did I get shot and how did I survive? And it was, yeah. and I talked to kids, uh, you know, a lot cause I was a counselor at that time. Sure. And, uh, and, uh, so, uh, that was a major story as you might imagine for many, many years. Absolutely. And anybody that was at camp during the sixties knew of the story and even the legend, even beyond, uh, even into post camp, uh, everybody wanted to you know, hear the story cause I still had. I mean, I have a, a scar from here to here mm. and a scar over here all the way around, and everybody always wants to see that. So that was the accident story, and uh, it was it was part of the folklore for a very long time. That wow. I was part of it. And Denny and Mickey always said, Gary, I want you to talk to the kids. I want you to tell the stories and, you know, what happened to you and how did you survive and how did you make it through. And camp really helped me make it through in mm. terms of uh, um, getting out of Chicago not being looked at as an invalid by my parents, not being right. protected and getting back out onto the field. That's yeah. all I could think about. Yeah. How do I get back on the field? I was going to say, I imagine it's more than just the working out. It's also like sort of getting your head right and kind it of was. figuring that emotionally how to deal with it. Because Ojib was not going to cut you any slack. Oh, no. Oh, you got shot? That's great. We got a softball That's game. right. That's right. No, it, 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 and, and uh, yeah. you know, it, it did cut me some slack. Uh, Denny and Mickey were very concerned about, you know, if I'd get hurt again or if mm, I was playing in a physical game you know, of any kind, basketball or whatever. I played high school basketball and I played high school baseball and so I was a two-sport guy. So they were concerned. But no, they didn't uh, They didn't hover over me and uh, and I was able to, you know, so to speak, get back out in the field and yeah. work out. And I really worked out incessantly for when Denny was a major workout guy. Oh, Denner yeah, for was sure. Unbelievable. He helped me big time in terms of the, the what I, you know, at that time, physical fitness training was nowhere near what it was today with the equipment and, the, and, the, and you know, the regimens, but he was doing the regimen, and he helped me with that in a big way. Wow. So that's a pretty interesting story, to say the least. Yeah, for uh, sure. What a tale. Wow. Yeah, it was, it was pretty cool. So, um, you know, those are the stories uh, that I can tell you. Uh, uh, I was there, obviously, for many, many years when Al was there and loved every bit of it. Uh, mm -hmm. He was... You know, I loved, I, I don't know that we still do it, but he used to go to every single camp and, uh, uh, let's see, how, what was the exact phraseology? Boys all in, all in, Al. Good night, good night, boys. Good night, Al. And that that was what we did. There. Yeah. And then Dipper Shower was very, very big when I went to camp. Literally, you got out in front of the cabin at whatever time it was, at 7, 30, 8 o'clock in the morning, nude with a towel, <laughs> and went to the beach, and he did calisthenics and and breathing exercises and then you either had to dip into the into the lake or take a shower now were you a dip or a shower guy i was a i was a dip guy 
I was gonna I, say there's not really a lot of in betweeners. I, I was a dip guy. Went right into the water. Just yeah. you know, wanted to go in. It's freezing cold. Who cared? Didn't make any difference. <laughs> Denny's been uh, talking about trying to bring it back. Next it was year. fabulous. <laughs> and I can tell you that there was a girls' camp all the way on the other side, or there was a. It was either a girls' camp or there was a couple of lodges on the other side, mm. and we knew that they were constantly had uh, telescopes and binoculars sure. looking at the, <laughs> the kids and whatever. Uh, uh, the Braves and the medicine man, the medicine, the Braves were a huge organization when yeah. I was there. It was really big. Now, to when you a, were there, was it still that? Um, uh, was was everyone a Brave, or did you get picked at certain ones? No, and, you got yeah. picked. You got picked because in right. the '60s, that sort of starts yes, to change. That's but, right. No, you got picked, and I have to tell you, my first year, I did not get picked, mm. and I was really, really hurt. Why didn't I get picked? I was a very good athlete. Uh, I think I had a little bit of a temper. Um, Although I had the Ojibwa spirit, um, I, I was, I, I, you know, frankly, I probably was not brave quality in my first year at Ojibwa, mm. and I got passed over. And I, I became a brave in, uh, in my next year in 1961, but it hurt the first year it really yeah. did. And, yes, it was a selected situation, and it was a critical deal in terms of the whole process of being selected and being initiated into the Braves. Right. That was also mm-hmm. a definite thing. Uh, Walking around camp with blindfolds and all that kind of stuff, and the uh, <laughs> having to do chores all day, yes, and that whole thing, all, yep, on silence. You got brave silence, absolutely. So uh, today, you know, like I said, uh, the relationships that I've built up with uh, Ojibwa folks uh, from 1960 to 1990 were hard to break. Yeah. And the Ojibwa spirit, the Ojibwa tradition. My kids and my family will tell you that everywhere I've gone in the world with them. I run into somebody that went to camp with or somebody that I was a counselor for. Oh, that's fantastic. Gary, is that you? You were my counselor in 1967, blah, blah, blah. Uh, I'm still a pretty good athlete today, but I gave up uh, hardball and basketball at 30 years old and started took up golf and tennis, so I'm a pretty mm-hmm. avid golfer. Today I belong to a country club in, in Highland Park, and there's at least a half a dozen people there that I was a counselor for. Oh, that's true. That come up to me, Gary. You're my counselor, and so a bunch of guys that were, and I know the Annexter family extremely well sure. as a result of the club that I belong to, and there was a there was a bunch of guys, and like I said, my kids today, I have a 32-year-old daughter and a 35-year-old daughter, and they cannot believe who I run into around the world that went to Ojibwe, mm. and uh, still do today. Uh, Elliot is uh, my estate planning guy, and right out of college, he was. I went to him. And he's my estate planning guy. As I said, Harvey was my accountant for many, many years. Yeah. Uh, I had a situation with my business that was a little unique, uh, and I went to a, a post camper uh, father. Uh, his name was Mick. His name is Mickey Gaynor. Mm-hmm. And at at that that uh, uh, law firm, another Ojibwe guy who just got a liver transplant and is doing great. Marty Salzman, David mm. Salzman is his son, and David yes. was the camp doctor for many years, as well as in charge of the waterfront. Yeah. And Marty and I went to camp in the 60s together. I went to Mickey Gaynor for a particular problem that my business had, and Marty was an attorney there right out of college. Mm. Another Ojibwa guy also ended up the firm. You'll know the name in two seconds. You know Jim Nachman. Sure. Passed away, unfortunately. Jim and I were very, very friendly. And his brother, Bobby Nachman, was there. Oh, excellent. So I go to this firm. My attorneys with my partner are Mickey Gaynor Postcamp, Marty Salzman, and Bobby Nachman. <laughs> we go into a, what was called a creditor's meeting, and the other attorney, which I knew, was also an Ojibwe guy. Wow. Rich Lauder. 
L-A-U-T-E-R. And his boss was Steve Elrod. <laughs> the Rich Louder gets up into this group. There's 12, 15 people there, my battery of attorneys and their battery of attorneys. Rich, Rich Louder's on the other side. He said, I knew this kid, this guy. He says kid. Hmm. I knew this guy. Maybe I was 40 at the time, 45, whatever it was. I knew this kid from the 1960s at Ojibwe. He's a stand-up guy. He's a great guy. And every attorney in the room was from Ojibwe. Wow. On both sides. That's incredible. It really is. Yeah. It really is. Uh, so those contacts, you know, still stayed very strong. And uh, as you know, when you run into an Ojibwe person, there's an immediate bond. There's an immediate connection yeah. uh, from the way we grew up, the way we lived. And, yes, competition was very, very strong. Uh, that one of the stories was when we played, we had a softball team. I was, I was the left fielder of our softball team as a counselor probably for six years in a row. Mm. And, we, and all of our team positions were pretty much set. Marty Sullivan played first. Steve Lewis played center. Uh, I played left. Hank Karansky played one position. We all had the same position because we were there year after year after year. Mm. We had a very good softball team. I understand that the mess hall has been brought out a little bit. Yes. I was a switch hitter. As I said, I was a pretty good athlete. And I, as a young kid, at 12 or 13 years old, I could hit the ball in the mess hall. Wow. As a left-handed hitter. I was a switch hitter, and uh, you know I could hit the ball in the shower house easily because that came out a little <laughs> bit. Uh, but the mess hall, I could hit the ball as a mess hall as a 13, 14, 15. Wow. Right? And the campers were, you know, whatever. So we were playing. I can't remember that we were playing either Three Lakes or playing uh, – uh, Eagle River or playing another team in softball. And about the fourth or fifth inning, Al brings out a new clincher, <laughs> a hard ball. So right, right when course. we're about to bat, you know. Sure. So the, you know, were we competitive? <laughs> Absolutely. Was Denny competitive when we were growing up? Big time. Yeah. And, you know, to that end, I, I will have to say this is a, uh, a little bit of a regret mm. that I wasn't a little bit more mature and that we weren't a little smarter but there was a little bit too much screaming and yelling as a coach on the sidelines mm. at other kids and my kids and my team. And in retrospect, as I learned and grew, uh, there needed to be more positive influence and positive uh, uh, comments to them rather than beating them up. And, you know, unfortunately, we were uh, clipboard-throwing coaches. Sure. And that was a genre that I, I, I in looking back... I wish that Denny was stronger with us when he was the head counselor at, at that approach. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it, it got much better in what I understood in the 70s and 80s where that wasn't allowed and you couldn't you know, be screaming and yelling at your kids. Right. And I did do that, and I didn't like that. Uh, you know, back to the coaching. Uh, you'll love this story. Uh, back to the coaching. As I said, I was a real good coach, both baseball and basketball. And so Mike Bagan and Elliot Friedman came to me after we – after camp was over, and I, I, I'm still going to post camp, but I'm not going back anymore as a counselor. And mm -hmm. I've got a, I've started a business with Ojibwe guys, and they came to me. They said, Gary, if you, if we put together a basketball team, this is for BBYO. Mm -hmm. If we put together a basketball team, will you coach? We'll organize. We'll schlep the kids to and from practice, to and from the games. We'll organize everything. You'll help us select the team. Would you coach? I said, absolutely. I'm going to say, and Jim Nachman took my place, I'm going to say that, that for three, four years running, Elliot and Mike Bagan, with a team of eight to ten basketball players, I coached 50 to 60 basketball games from approximately October 1st through March. Wow. 
and we went all around to play basketball. There was not as much organized activities in those days right. as there is today with high school teams. And there, w- there was a need for high school players or even junior high players to have some regimen, to have some coaching. Mm. And I coached some of our best basketball players in the history of, uh, history of, uh, of Ojibwa. Uh, uh, Mark Mursky, who ended up playing at Creighton and Tulane. Mm. Marty Block, who ended up trying, a short guy, but great basketball player, ended up playing at Arizona State for a while. My claim to fame on that, I'm still extremely close with him, is Larry Lubin. Mm. So Larry Lubin was our star athlete at Ojibwe for many, many years in a lot of different sports. Had some very, very interesting challenges with his family. Mike Bagan, Elliot Fried, and myself were his mentors mm. and did a tremendous amount for Larry during a lot of family issues. He lost a brother to an accident. His mother had some challenges. His dad was a, an incredibly hard-driving father, and he couldn't wait to, 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 to go to our basketball games and for me to coach. And uh, so when he was uh, a junior in high school, I'm still coaching him, and the coach of the University of Illinois, Gene Bartow, who coached at the University of UCLA, hmm. came to one of our several of our practices. And afterwards, asked me what kind of guy is Larry, what kind of character does he have, what is his you know intelligence level in the basketball court. I'm being talked to because he's thinking of giving him a scholarship. Yeah. Gene Bartow gave Larry Lubin a scholarship. It was the first scholarship that he gave as as the University of Illinois coach. Wow. Sorry about that. No, that's okay. It's really wonderful. I mean, it's amazing the, the opportunity you had to do something like that for someone through camp. I felt I had a lot to do with that. Uh, Larry uh, is still a great friend. He's a member of the same country club I am, and uh, he remembers it that way. He tells people that he says, if, I, if it wasn't for Gary and Elliot and Mike, I might not be where I'm at today. Mm, wow. So, That's great. There's great stories, great stuff, uh, huge part of my life, huge part of my kid's life. Still close with Mickey. There's a you know very strong bond. I used Mickey in my business as our insurance agent, mm. and his partner Lenny Weisskirk, and we used Mickey for 25, 30 years. So, almost every tentacle of my life has something connected with Ochoa, mm. and still a part owner today. That's incredible. Just real quick, <laughs> I tell you one other thing. Uh, I, have you met Barry, the Feldman? Barry of Feldman. Course, okay. Of course. Okay. So. Yeah. Barry Feldman was a great athlete, and I coached him on the Sooners. I went to Oklahoma, so my my basketball team was the Sooners, and uh, th- this is also folklore for anybody who was there in the 1960s, anybody that was there, and I, I'm not proud of what I'm going to tell you, but uh, I coached Barry. We had a very good basketball team, and we're coaching against Joel Kransky, who you met and interviewed yes. in the finals of the basketball, a d- top division, and... Uh, the plaque is ours. The plaque is ours. It's We've got 10 to 15 seconds in the game, and the ball is, is we've got the ball, and we've got the lead by two points. Can't lose. Should be no problem. Get my call a timeout. We've got the ball. Call a play. Talk to all the guys and what I want them to do. Get the ball to Barry, my first pick. He'll dribble it out, blah, blah, blah. I have a guy take the ball out. He does not throw the ball to Barry. He throws the ball to a guy by the name of Rick Brody. 
and Rick Brody, for some other reason, cranks up about a 25, 30 footer in the three point range <laughs> with no time left on the clock. And my center, Craig Boyer, jumps over Steve Rosen, who's Joel's first pick. Nachman calls a foul. No time left on the clock. Steve Rosen's got a one on one, is what it was at that particular stage. He hits two free throws. We lose the game in overtime. <laughs> Barry today, Barry Feldman will never forget that, neither will I. I almost wanted to kill Craig Boyer and Rick Brody. I wanted to literally kill them. I don't think I talked to anybody for two or three days after it was so, That plaque, you needed that plaque. You, the you plaque. wanted your name up there. <laughs> we had the game. Craig Boyer, to this day, he's 55, 60-year-old guy. When I see him. <laughs> will not look me in the eyes. Even today, Craig Boyer, or not today, but years after that, when I was around, would make sure he was not near mine. Wow. And I felt terrible about that. He wouldn't come out of the cabin. If I was around, he was in cabin 13 many times. If I'm around, he tried to stay in the cabin to stay away from me. That's how bad he felt, and that's how bad wow. I made him feel. And what a terrible thing to to, to do. But wow. Joel and I just talked about it just the other day. He, he yeah. And Barry, every time I see Barry, Sooners, should have been up there. How did that happen? <laughs> so uh, just another amazing uh, story of folklore and coaching and and uh, not real good of, of the way I treated Craig after that. I didn't feel good about that, and, and it was Rick Brody's problem as well. But I'll tell you what, Steve Rosen, two, no time left on the clock and hits two free throws as a young 14, 15-year-old. a lot of pressure. A lot of pressure, <laughs> and then they win in overtime. It was pretty effing amazing. That's awesome. It really was. So, one one last story. Okay, that is it. What did I tell you? Gary Greenberg. Great stories. Speaking of that Leo DeRocher story, when I put up the podcast, I'm also going to put up a scan of the medicine man from the day DeRocher came to camp. Thank you, Doug Meyer, for supplying that medicine man. Uh, it's pretty cool. It gives a little more flesh to the story. As always, if you want to get in touch with the podcast, you know how. Drop me an email, Christopher at CampoJibbohistory.org. If you have any questions, concerns, comments, if you have a really good recipe for a red velvet cake, I'm in the mood for all those things. Send me a line. I know you guys have gotten really excited about my constant weather updates here from New York City. So let me just say right now that in the past 18 or 20 hours, we got 27 inches of snow. I ain't got no time for that. That's garbage. That is the worst weather ever. And it sucks. That's the whole thing. So that's your weather report live from New York City. 27 inches of snow sucks and makes it almost impossible for me to go out and have a cigar. Thank you.